Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you again this morning. It's September. I love this time of year. Uh, in the fall, you know, the, it, it's, I love when football starts and kids are back to school, which is really good. Um, get them back to school. It's fantastic. Um, I love that, you know, the weather gets cold and we can just really experience the changing seasons here in San Diego. But uh, today actually is uh, my middle son. Uh, it, it's his birthday today. He's, he's turned 12. And um, I know it's weird because I'm 25. But um, so I, I was looking at him today and thinking, you know, whatever happened, how did you become 12? And I was remembering when it was just he and his older brother, when there's just still two of them. And, and one day we were in the airport. I, I don't know why this story came to my head the other day, but um, his older brother was probably six and he was like three or four, something like that. And we were in the airport waiting to get on the plane and, and another kid came over and, and it's, you know, kids hang out, they play, they make friends right away. And this other kid was about their age, came over and looked at him and said, oh, how, to the oldest, and he said, how old are you? He said, I'm six. And the kid looked at him and goes, well, I'm seven. I'm bigger than you. It's like, okay. And, and my oldest son just went like, yeah, whatever. And he looked over at Ian, who's my middle son, who at the time was like three or four. And he goes, I'm way bigger than you. And Ian looked at him, he looked up, looked down, and just punched him right in the gut. <laughs> and the kid started crying, and he laughed. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was one of those moments as a dad, you see that, and, and then I was just thinking, oh, I hope the other parent doesn't come over and say, you know, what, how, what, what kind of kids are you raising? And he didn't, thankfully, and I didn't even say anything to my son about it, because I watched the whole thing, and the kid deserved it. And, um, <laughs> and, but it's, it's just one of those moments that, as a dad, you think, I don't, I don't know, how do you want to respond to that? You know, because on one hand, you want him to stand up for himself. Two, we don't want him to, you know, think violence is the answer. But it's just, so you just let it work itself out, you know. But as they get older, the question is, how do we raise our kids in a way that is appropriate in responding? On Friday, I, we dropped off the, the kids at school, and I was hanging out with some of the other parents. And it was interesting, we had this conversation about we wanted to how difficult it is to just let your kids go off to school knowing that they go through what we all went through, right? The, the name calling, the bullying, the people who come and look at you and say, I'm way bigger than you. And, and they have to kind of wrestle through those issues in life. And we were talking uh, with the other parents, like how you kind of just want to be there for them, but they need to go through it. But then the t- conversation turned to... We want to raise our kids in a way that they understand how to love others and treat others. And it was interesting because none of the friends who I was hanging out with even had a, a faith to base that on. But they still were worried and thinking, I want my kids to grow up and learn how to treat others well. And I left that conversation and just thought, oh man, God figures I have to teach on this this week. And, and so I'm always having to process what I have to teach on and get opportunities. But the question really came for me is, how do you raise people? How do we become people who really understand what it means to love others? When sometimes this world gives us plenty of opportunities and people that are not easy to love. <laughs> and how do you raise your kids in that? But then how can I be that type of person? And it works out well because last week, Dale walked us through a passage in, in the book of Second John. 
And he walked us through, if you recall from last week, we talked about living truth, and which is the title of our next series because we're going to expand that. But in it, we looked at the basis for our life of followers of Christ. We have something to base the way we live. So he, we talked about the truth and how we want to live out the truth that God has given us. And one of the things that Dale walked us through was this idea that applying truth and putting it into action actually leads to a better life. It's wisdom that leads to stronger relationships, better decisions, and a fuller life, a more full life. It might not be a formula for more money, fame, and power, but here at Seacoast, we believe when we live truth, that that is actually the best way to live. And so as he walked us through that, then I started thinking, and, we, and, and the passage clearly teaches, from there, when you live truth, what's the practical application of that? And we're going to discover today that the practical application of living truth then results in loving one another and becoming people who understand how to love. And so today we're going to continue with this two-week mini-series and look at, now that we know we want to live truth, how do we love well? How do we love the way God has called us to? And another question, why should we love others? And what does that look like? So that's what we're going to walk through today. So join me as we pray, and then we're going to go back into the book of Second John in just a moment. God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you uh, for the great challenge that you give me in trying to live truth. And the challenge of applying that and learning to be people who love others is, is tough, God. But I pray that as I teach, Lord, they actually be your words through me and that I would learn as well. And help us as a church become people who understand what it means to love well, as you've called us to. And so we give you this time now and thank you for it. In your name, amen. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Second John. This is a letter written by a guy named John. And 2 John is one of the last books in your Bible. So if you go all the way towards the end, you find the book of Revelation just... You went a little too far, so it's just a little bit before that. It's between 1st and 3rd John. So if you find one of those, you'll know. You're close. So the book of 2nd John, it's written, it's a series of letters, we believe, written by John, the disciple John, and most likely to a group of people, to Christians in the area of Asia Minor, or think of it as modern-day Western Turkey. A group of churches there. Now, the context in which he's writing... The church was relatively new, but it was growing, and it was a very healthy church on some respects. But they were wrestling through this kind of division that was happening. And when he wrote, when he was writing this, there was what was called a heresy was coming in, this new kind of belief about Jesus that was untrue. And people were wrestling with this idea of, How could Jesus be God in flesh? In other words, why would God walk and live as a human being and be sacrificed for our sins? It was so hard for them to grasp, but people started thinking, well, maybe he actually didn't do it. Not that he didn't, not that there wasn't a person named Jesus, not that Jesus didn't die on a cross, but somehow in that process, the God part of Jesus left because no way would God be sacrificed. And it led to what later on became this belief called Gnosticism, which was this belief that nothing that was physical can be good. 
So flesh, because we know as humans, are relatively not necessarily good all the time. Like, you know, we do good things sometimes. We have good intentions. But they're saying, God is so good, he couldn't be flesh. So this belief came out that say, flesh is evil and spirit is good. So there's no way that Jesus could be both because that just doesn't make sense to us. So now for those of you who don't care about the background and all that, we're done with that. But so know that because of this, people started dividing and the church would split over this issue. And Christians have carried on the tradition of fighting ever since, which is good. But um, thank you. Thanks, George. One, one person thought that was funny other than me. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now this is an issue worth dividing over because believing who Jesus is, it's very important. It's fundamental. This is something that you say, hey, we're not teaching a heresy. But what happened is people weren't fully accepting the truth. It makes sense now when you read these letters of John, how he's so concerned that you walk in truth, you believe the truth, apply the truth. But then he brings in what we'll look at today. The other side of it is, and love one another. Because the church was wrestling with how do we do that with all these different opinions and fights going on. So with that, let's look at 2 John. And we're going to reread a few of the verses that we looked at last week. And we're going to bounce around a little bit uh, today to develop this. But let's look at 2 John and just to kind of get us up to speed. We'll read verse, start in verse 1. It says, To the elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. Now, by the way, as, as Dale talked through last week, the chosen lady might really just be a lady and her children. It could be. Um, it could be a metaphor for a church. We don't really know, but we do know the letter was circulated among the early Christians. So if it was just to one person and her family, it was still intended to be applied to all followers of Jesus. Okay, so there you go. It says, For the sake of truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace and mercy and peace be with us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we've received the commandment to do so from the Father. Now I ask you, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So John starts with this letter, and he's, again, last week we really looked at that whole foundation of walking in truth, believing the truth, which is the truth of Scripture, the truth handed down from God. It's the basis of which we stand and, and build our lives upon. And he said, now that you're walking in truth, remember to follow this commandment. It's a commandment from the very beginning, and that commandment is to love one another. Now, when I read that, and maybe you've been around Christianity long enough to have heard enough sermons about loving one another. You've been told to love one another. You've tried to love one another. Some of you do love one another pretty well. But this week, when I'm putting this together, I asked a question, which I really haven't ever asked before. I just took it for granted. Is, God, why? Why do you want us to love one another? Now, there's a lot of reasons, right? But I never actually thought, why is this such a big deal to you? And so... When we look at this, let's start with this. What does love do? Why are we called to love one another? 
What does Scripture teach us about that? Other than just because, you know, maybe it would be chaotic if we didn't. Maybe because we're people, we need to be reminded. But what is the deeper meaning? Why does God want us to love each other? And there's a couple things that that pop out. One is right here that we just read in in verse 6, when he says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is a command for you to walk in it. Now, the first thing that love does is love fulfills the law. Look at 1 John chapter 5. So just go back a couple chapters. Verses 5, sorry, chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Love fulfills the law. What do I mean by that? Look at this. John writes this in his earlier letter. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Now, Keep that in mind. So we're keeping God's commands. That's how we love God. Does this make sense yet? I'm not sure. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. I have this on the screen for you. Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10 says this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So here it is again. Love actually fulfills the commandments or the law of God. How? How? For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no wrong to your neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. In other words, when we're trying to look at the commands of God and the way he's called us to live, if you look at all the lists, the author here is Paul, and then later John, they both say... When we love one another, we actually are fulfilling all those laws that are wrapped up into one. Jesus actually was asked once, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. If, if you break that down and look at it, loving God is actually, and when he's, this passage here is actually referring to the Ten Commandments because it's something you can kind of get your head around. The first half of the Ten Commandments, if we love God above all else, you kind of fulfill those commands. The second half, if you're loving neighbors, you're fulfilling those commands by the way you treat other people. It's a fulfillment of the law. Now, I'm going to expand that a little bit in just a moment, but this is the theory behind it. According to Scripture, when we love, the way we interact, the way we treat other people actually covers the law. Think of it. Would you steal? Is stealing from someone love? Of course not. You could look at all the different commands and find, oh, when I treat someone with love, it's a fulfillment of the law. We're gonna, as I said, in a moment we'll look like we'll look at what does that actually look like? How does that play itself out? But there's another thing that happens of why God calls us to love. Why is it important for Him? And the second thing, so the first one is because it fulfills the law. The second one is this: it puts God's character on display. Our love for one another puts God's character on display. In the book of John 13, verse 35, Jesus is speaking. He says this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, the way you love one another will be a testament to the world around. They'd look at you and say, Oh, you must be a student or a follower of Jesus. Because the way we interact with others, the way we love, puts God's character on display. It literally shows people, oh, there's something about you. You look like Jesus' followers. 
Now, unfortunately, today that's not often said of Christians, is it? I play in this lunchtime basketball league, and I just met some guys the other day I was playing, and they said, well, what do you do when you're not here playing basketball? And I, and, and I tried getting around what I do for work and said, oh, I do a lot of things. And, and finally, like, do you mean what do I do for money? And so then I told them, well, I'm a pastor. And one of them, and, and <laughs> I guess this sounds bad now that I say it, but one of them said, oh, I would have never guessed that. <laughs> Shoot, I, I, forget, I, don't, I guess that's not good, is it? I'm saying that in front of the elders. No. <laughs> and I said, why? Did you actually hear me say something? You know? and, and, um, and I asked him, I said, well, why? And, and I was thinking, that day I was on my best behavior. So, And he said, well, you just don't act like a lot of the Christians I know. He said, you're actually someone that I'd like to hang out with. And, and I wasn't cussing or throwing elbows or anything, Okay. He just said so many Christians just seem so uptight and they come in here and they come with all their anger at the world. And you didn't come and do that. And I think, well, that's kind of sad. They're supposed to know we are Christians by our love, not by our anger. <laughs> but often that's how people see us, right? And unfortunately, again, like anything in life, people take the extremes and say, that's how you are. Well, I get that. But we are our love puts God's character on display. That's why it's so important that we love. So, we know why God calls us to love because it's the fulfillment of the law and it puts his character on display. I think even for me, when I first became a Christian, um, actually right before I became a Christian, I went to this youth event and, and, and it was amazing to me. I saw Christians having fun. I never saw that before. And then later that year, I did a couple of things with the youth group. I was... Um, I never went to youth group, but I went to this one event once. And I remember seeing how much fun they had with each other, but how they interacted with one another. And I remember as a sophomore in high school just thinking, well, this is really different than anything I've seen among my friends. What was it? It was God's character on display in their lives, which ultimately was what was drawing me to Christ. So it's important that we have that. So that's why we love. Now, what does love look like? So let's look at what love looks like. We're going to be back in uh, the book, stay in 1 John, if you're there. This time in chapter 4 of 1 John. Now, before we even read this, I want you to know, in Scripture, there's three different words for love, uh, according to the Greek, so in the New Testament. In this case, when we're called to love one another in these descriptions of love, it's using a word that's agape. And agape is an unconditional love. It's a love that is that you're called to do without expecting anything in return. If you think of that, how think of the word love and how we use it in our culture. The word love has been cheapened in modern use. Think of all the times you hear and see love throughout the day. How many of you here love Captain Crunch cereal? <laughs> I mean, how many of you love the San Diego Chargers? How many of you love that the Seahawks are playing them today? <laughs> and love the Seahawks? Okay, yeah, really? Nice, all right, good. I'm staying on this side with you. All right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we love our college football teams. We love... Uh, surfing, we love living by the ocean, we love San Diego weather, we love a lot of things, don't we? We love all kinds of things. So much so that we kind of forget what this word really means. 
We don't agape those things. I mean, how many of you really, well, I guess maybe Chargers fans are unconditional in their love, but (laughs) you have to be. But other, other teams, bandwagon fans, you don't have to be unconditional. You can love your team when they give you the championship. You can jump on, I mean, you know, we, we, love, we love living here, but we complain when the weather's not, you know, when it's above 80 and below 60. It's like, really? Ugh. We don't agape those things. It's not an unconditional love that we expect nothing back. We want something back. We, we want good weather. That's why we're in San Diego. We want the ocean. We want our teams to win. We want our Captain Crunch to taste good and not be stale and soggy. And we want, these things, we want something back from the things we love. We don't agape those. So when Scripture talks of it, it's this unconditional love. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4, and I'll show you what I mean. Verse 9, we'll pick it up in verse 9. By this the love of God was made known to us, that God has sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. This is agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, the uh, propitiation for our sins or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He took our place. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does love look like? What does agape look like? It looks like God looking at us who did not deserve anything but loving us and sending his son before we ever could possibly love him. What does love look like? It looks like a love that is free from any obligation, first of all. It's unconditional. And the greatest example is in the love that God has for us when he sent his son Jesus. Undeserved. It wasn't because we loved first. It's because he loved first. And you know, God doesn't pull his love away from his creation when creation does stupid things continues to love. Now for some of us, I don't know about you, but sometimes I take for granted. I I don't take for granted, but I don't always feel the full weight of what God did with sending his son. I get it. I understand it. I love that he sent his son in my place. But I think it's so familiar that sometimes I think, well, yeah, you're a good God. That's why you did that. But sometimes for me, I think, do you know what God's unconditional love looks like in my life today? Not just that he sent his son, but his unconditional love like me, for me shows up today that he doesn't strike me dead throughout the week. <laughs> that he still loves me. When there's times when I think, I'm a pastor, and sometimes, you know, the things I'll think or say or do, the fact that God doesn't say, okay, done, you're out, <laughs> reminds me often that that is amazing unconditional love. And I know some of you are perfect, but a lot of you are not. And, and those of you who are not, maybe you can remember throughout the week, wow, that God has given, that he still loves me. Despite what I just thought, he still loves me. That's unconditional love. You know, we have this thing that we are focused on here, Seacoast this year, called Love Encinitas. And the whole idea came when our... our leadership got together in the spring and we were talking about we want to be a church that doesn't just exist in the community and that you know people who come here like to be here but we thought our goal is that the non-christians the leadership in our 
uh, government, the schools, that people say, we are so grateful that Seacoast Church is in our community. We, we believe because God gave us so much and he's poured out his love for us that we wanted to be that for our community. We wanted our uh, Encinitas to say, wow, something is different about those people at Seacoast. We are so grateful that they are here. And, with, and so we're doing a partnership with uh, Sunset High School. Uh, we're doing more with uh, the Community Resource Center and various programs that we're just wanting to bless and be a part of our community. Now, we are not doing those things so we get anything in return. Do we hope people become followers of Jesus and maybe even join us here at Seacoast? Yeah, that'd be great. We would love that. But we are not loving Encinitas so that we get something back. We are loving Encinitas because God loves us. So therefore, we will love. It's become a big thing for us around here. And it was really fun the other day. I was um, at a water polo game for SDA and my son's playing and, and one of the other parents there is actually a teacher at Sunset High School. And he told me, I, lo- I love, I really like what you guys are doing, what Seacoast is doing. It's so great that you are willing just to be here and bless our kids and our teachers. We've done a few lunches and breakfasts for them. Just to say, hey, we want to support you and what you do. We didn't want anything back. We just want to love because God has loved us. And it obviously leads to good conversations. So what does love look like? One, it's it's unconditional. It's free from obligation. The second is this, and this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul's writing, and he's saying, have the same mindset of Jesus. Use the example of Christ. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or or, or empty conceit, conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. One of the things that love looks like is when we actually elevate others and consider them more important than ourselves. Now that's not saying walk around thinking, oh, I'm a low life, I'm nothing, that oh, I'm just a low creation because I'm a Christian. No, no, not at all. You're a child of God. But the mindset of Christ is, Elevate others and look at them and say, how can I treat them as someone who's important? Think of someone in your life that you, a celebrity or someone famous you would love to meet. Somebody, maybe it's a football player or or a a politician, probably not, but maybe someone that, that you really look at and think, this person's amazing. Love to meet that person. Now, how would you treat them if you were in a room or if you're driving, they cut you off and you get angry, you go around and you look and you go like, oh, whoa. Actually, no, that's, you know who that is? That's some, you, you all of a sudden would treat them differently, wouldn't you? Probably. Have that mindset of what would you do? What would it look like if you treated others as better than yourself? If you looked at others and say, how can I do something to bless them? How could I give up my place in line? Give up the good seat. Let them in front of me. How can I uh, just encourage this person? Something as simple as that. Love looks like someone who considers others above themselves. I was blessed to have two uh, really uh, sets, uh, two sets of great of grandparents who were really really great. (laughs) That they were hospitable, they're loving, they're generous people, and one of them, towards the end of his life, the last year of his life, his health was really poor, and I went up to visit him one time and. 
And I said, oh, what have you been up to? And he goes, oh, last week I went out in the woods and I, I cut a tree and cut up a bunch of firewood. And I thought, Grandpa, there's people who will do that for you. We can do that for you. You don't have to do it. He goes, oh, it wasn't for me. It was for this other guy who he's really, you know, is a disabled vet and he has trouble. So I, I cut him a bunch of firewood for the winter because it gets cold at his house. I'm just thinking, okay, that's what it looks like to consider others above yourself. Say, how can I do something for someone else? So love looks like unconditional, considering others above yourself. And just for fun, we'll give you another list if you need more practical things. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, many of you are probably familiar. If you need to have a challenge, just take this little checklist around and say, am I loving this person? Love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong, it is, does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth, love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. The people you interact with, if you can check all those off, you are agapeing those people. <laughs> so if you really need a challenge, you can just use that if you want something real practical. So those are some of the things that love looks like. So now the last question is, okay, so who are we supposed to love? Who are we supposed to love? Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Uh, pick it up in verse 17. It says this, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, but closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So John starts us off and says, first of all, at the very least, you need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It starts with a love for one another in the family of faith. One of the reasons we're so into life groups is not because we think it's the dynamic program that will grow the church. We like life groups because we know that that is where we practice what we learn. Dale likes to call it the lecture in the lab. This is the lecture. Life groups, your small groups, are the lab where you kind of work it out and see how this thing plays itself out, where you can practice loving one another. When you sit in a room with people, get to know them, and you get to know the junk in their lives, you get to practice what it looks like to love each other. When you allow them to know some of the junk in your lives and trust that you can still be loved by them, that's where we practice what it means to love one another, where we say, I'll walk with you through this. Rather than saying, oh, you're that messed up? Seriously? Okay, this is not going to work. Because if you're feeling that about someone else, that they're too messed up, that's just because you weren't honest enough to show, show them how messed up you are. <laughs> yeah. So in our smaller groups, we learn to love one another. And that's where we're commanded to begin, to walk, each, walk with each other in the faith. But it does go beyond that, and you know that. You know we're going there. In John chapter 3, verse 16, John writes this. For God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his only son. God's our example of what love looks like unconditionally, and God loves the world, <laughs> meaning we are called to love people. Which people? All people. <laughs> the example from God the Father, the creator of all, is that he loves his creation and wants desperately to bring his creation back into relationship with him. 
And he wants to do that through love because we know that love is transformative. And he left us as his followers here on earth to do the job for him of showing the world what love looks like. Again, I've said it before. It's a horrible idea to leave that up to us. I get it. But he did. So we are called to love people, all people, to show the love of God. Now, I was talking to someone after the first service, and I understand that for some, it's got to be baby steps. For some of you, there's people in your life where it's very difficult to love. Some of you may love in action, but you don't feel it. This is not a warm, fuzzy feeling all the time. I get that too. Some of you just need to take a step of love towards others. But we're called to do this. And for some of you, maybe it's just baby steps. It's okay. It's okay. Some of you are just filled with love, so you're good to go. Just keep loving. (laughs) But we all have people that we struggle with. We don't have time to look at it, but Jesus gave a great example. Once he was, they said, you know, what's a great command, one of the commandments? And he said, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the person said, well, who's my neighbor? And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells this story called the Good Samaritan. And most are familiar. And there's a guy who is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And then a a pastor, of all people, can you believe that? A pastor actually walked right by him and didn't help. I can't believe it. Anyway, so the pastor saw the person hurting and thought, no, I have very spiritual things to do, so I'm not going to help. And I hate that story because when I'm driving down the street and I see someone on the side of the road who needs help, I always think like, I just don't feel like it right now. Hate it. I hate that story that they call out pastors, seriously. Um, but the pastor says, no, I got other things to do. Another person goes by, too busy. We're religious. And then finally a Samaritan who was hated in their culture took the time to bring that person in, to help bandage their wounds, to pay for them to stay at an inn, so sacrifice of themselves, considered the person better than themselves, offered them love, showed them mercy and compassion and walked away. And Jesus says, who is it who is a neighbor to that person? And the crowd said, well, the one who showed mercy. Who are we called to love, to be a neighbor to? People who need a mercy. Who's in need of mercy? People. (laughs) Everyone. And we have the greatest motivation ever. We have the example of Jesus giving all for us. Brendan Manning says this in his book, The Furious Longing of God. He says, The gospel, the message of Jesus coming to us, is absurd, and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make a brand new creation. Not to make people with better morals or to create a community, of pro- but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers. Men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within. Who would live in even greater faithfulness to the omnipresent Word of God. Who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and the mystery of Christ. Into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian. What it really means to be a Christian is to be captured by that bold, extravagant, furious, all-consuming love because that's what God did for us.
I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way back up. And I know for me that there are some people that I find pretty easy to love. And there are times and there are some people that are more difficult. But if I really believe that God's love for me was unconditional, that he looked at me, an imperfect person, undeserving of love, yet poured out it all for me and called me into the story to participate in that, and gave me the picture of what it means to love well, then I need to join it. And I want to join it. And the challenge for us today as a church is to join in that call where God is making all things new. And he's doing it through you and through me. And I want to leave you with one verse as just a kind of encouragement. This is in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 or 5. It says this. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared not because what we did, but because he is good. Your call to love others is not because they are lovable. It's because you are loved by God. And that's our challenge. And I hate it. (laughs) I don't like this challenge. But I believe that love transforms. And we're invited to participate. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. And I thank you that you loved me when I was unlovable and you still love me in those times when I'm still unlovable. And God, I thank you that you've called us to participate with you in showing the world your character through our love, the way we love others. And so I ask that you transform us as people through your love and help us to love well as you've called us to in Scripture. We thank you for this time now and pray that as we continue to reflect, God, that you would bring people to mind or situations to mind where, Lord, we know that we can grow in this area. So, God, teach us as a community right now, Lord, what that love looks like and how to the call to follow you.